worshiping with all of you. Uh, and there is something extra special about getting to worship together on a baptism Sunday as we look forward to celebrating the good news of new life in Jesus Christ together with these four individuals whose lives are testimonies of the grace of God. I look forward to celebrating that with you in a few minutes. But before we get there, we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about Ephesians chapter 1, especially verses 7 through 12. We just started a sermon series in the book of Ephesians last week, and maybe just a really quick orientation about Ephesians and what we're doing in Ephesians would be helpful. Um, the book of Ephesians, uh, in chapter 2, verse 22, speaks of this idea of, quote, being built together in him. And we're at this unique point in our church's story where uh, even just three or four weeks ago, there were two different congregations meeting here in this building. And in God's kindness and in his guidance, as we have prayerfully asked him what he's leading toward, and as we've prayed and prayed and prayed and talked and talked and talked, God has led these two congregations to become one congregation together. Amen. And I thank God for that. And as two congregations are becoming one congregation, we want to pay attention to this book of the Bible, which gives us specific guidance from the New Testament, from, from God's word, from God himself, about what it means for Christians to be built together in Christ. And where does that begin in the book of Ephesians, that theme of being built together? As we mentioned last week, it begins here. It begins with gospel gratefulness rooted in gospel truth. The book of Ephesians begins with gospel gratefulness. You heard it like a giant fireworks show, one pop after another in verses 3 through 14 as Tori was reading that just a minute ago. In fact, as we pointed out last week, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is probably the longest sentence in the New Testament. As the book of Ephesians begins this theme of gospel gratefulness, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's as if in the process of trying to say a few things about what he means about our God and Savior, he just can't help but say this super long run-on sentence that keeps going and going and going and going. And so we've broken this super long sentence uh, into three sections here. In the original language, it's one long sentence in all of our translations that will show up in kind of bite-sized pieces. But each of those sections end with one theme, to the praise of his glory in verse 7, to the praise of his glory again in verse 12, and to the praise of his glory again in verse 14. And so last week, we talked a little bit about being built together as a church that that is united in gospel gratefulness for the Father's love. And this week, and rather, and next week, Josh Anderson will lead us in opening the word as we think about being a church united together in gospel gratefulness in light of the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. 
And today, we will talk about being a church united in gospel gratefulness as we think specifically about being redeemed through Christ. And as we think about these gospel, uh, about this idea of gospel gratefulness rooted in gospel truth, I know that even on a baptism Sunday, some of us will show up with something of a feeling that says, I know I should feel grateful, but, or maybe even more directly, I know other people feel grateful, but I don't. And where do we go when we say, I know I should be grateful, but, or when we say, I know other people feel grateful, For Jesus, but I don't. Where do we go? And I want to suggest to you that gospel gratefulness is rooted in gospel truth. And therefore, if we want to cultivate in our own hearts, and if we want to cultivate throughout our congregation gospel gratefulness, then we need to feed our worship with the fuel of God's truth. Like on a chilly spring day, if we wanted to build a great bonfire outside, warm enough for all of us to feel its warmth and to be comforted by it, what would we need to do? We would need to feed that fire with more and more fuel of logs of wood or kindling or whatever else, right? And in the same way, If we want our gatherings as a united church to be full of gospel gratefulness, so much so that all of us feel its warmth, and so much so that the the light would shine out from this place more and more, what do we need to do? We need to feed gospel truth into our gospel gratefulness. And here I want to point out to you as we pay attention to this long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to point out to you three great gospel truths that like fuel for the fire of the affections of our hearts. As we think together for a few minutes about these great gospel truths, I hope there is a warmth and a light that spreads. Here's the first great gospel truth that we see here in these verses. It's a great gospel truth that goes along with this word, redemption. Redemption. You see that, first of all, in verse 7. In him we have what? You guys are really inspired. Wow. Wow. All right, so in light of how excited you guys are about the word redemption, maybe a few words are in store here, right? So, um, uh, (laughs) in him we have what? That's a little bit better. All right, so this is one of those Bible words that we know has some meaning to it, but it's a word that kind of gets lost in translation sometimes. What does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to have redemption? The Bible was, or the New Testament was written in the Roman world of the first century. And in the Roman world of the first century, this idea of redemption typically had to do with liberation of captives or freedom for slaves. And so when the New Testament declares this great gospel truth that in Jesus Christ, All who are in him have redemption. What it's saying is that if you're in Jesus Christ, you've been set free. 
you've been liberated. From what? From slavery and captivity to sin and all of sin's consequences. This is the first great gospel truth that this passage puts in front of us. What does it mean to be liberated and to be set free from uh, from sin and all of sin's consequences? Verse 7 goes on to give us a little bit more description. What does it mean, this great gospel truth of redemption? In Him we have redemption through His blood, which is what? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to... To the riches of His grace. You don't need me to tell you what a sticky and challenging thing guilt and shame can be. You don't need me to tell you that because we're all familiar with it. We may try to kind of stuff down those guilty feelings. We may try to find ways to numb our feelings of shame. But all of us are familiar with what a challenging issue guilt and shame can be in our lives. And there's a reason why guilt and shame seem to stick to us more than mud sticks to clothing. Do you know why we feel like guilt and shame stick to us more than mud sticks to clothing? We feel that way because it is a sign of the fact that when there is real guilt, when there is real and legitimate shame, something needs to be done about it. It won't just get up and walk away on its own. And so those feelings that we sometimes have when we think back to my own life story. And you think back in your own life story. And we remember things of the past and feelings of guilt come up. Why? Because there's something wired into us to tell us. That when there is real guilt over real sin, something needs to be done about it. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ has done something about it. That's what Ephesians 1 refers to when it mentions his blood. Something needs to be done about our sin and about our guilt and about our shame. And God, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, praise His name, has done it. He sent His only Son into this world on a mission to deal with our sin, with our guilt, and with our shame for how each one of us has turned away from Him and gone our own way. He sent his son to deal with that by giving his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. Shedding his blood, not just with a little bit of a flesh wound, but shedding his blood all the way to the point of death. 
giving his own life as a blood sacrifice for our sins. And the New Testament points out quickly, giving his life as the only blood sacrifice that will ever be needed for all those who trust in him. And so now, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, when you think back to the past, and when you recall memories that lead you to feel guilty, or memories that lead you to want to hide in shame because of what you have done, you don't need to hide You don't need to wallow in that guilt. You don't need to find other substances to numb the feelings. You know what you can do? You can go right back to the blood of Jesus Christ and say, that guilt has already been paid for. It's done. It's secured. And not just by a trick of my imagination. By an actual sacrifice. A once-for-all-time sacrifice made by our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so, when we think back to mistakes, guilt, failings, sins of our past, we may think to ourselves, the only word that can be written over our lives is guilty. And if we're honest, each and every one of us could rightly be charged as guilty before God. But in the good news of Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks at any son or daughter of his purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, what he sees stamped as his eternal verdict over your life is not the word guilty. But instead, written in the unerasable blood of our Lord Jesus Christ over your life, over our lives, over our congregation, and over the countless multitude of people around the world and across the ages who have found hope in Jesus Christ, is painted in unerasable blood the word forgiven. What is painted in blood over your life is the word grace. What is painted in unerasable blood over your life is this word redeemed through Jesus Christ. Whatever guilt, whatever wrongs, whatever shame, whatever sins may stain your past, Jesus Paid it all. And therefore we have forgiveness in his blood. But notice in these verses how this idea, this great gospel truth of redemption, it kind of grows. Notice this, notice the the train of thought. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, there's that great gospel word, through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When I was a child, my grandmother loved to give me these little toys as a gift. I never fully understood them, but maybe some of you loved them. They were these little kind of capsules that had kind of an expandable thing inside of them. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so you take one of these capsules and you drop it in the right temperature of water and the, the outside it dissolves and this larger thing like a, a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex comes popping out of this small capsule, right? It was all there from the beginning. But given the right conditions and given the right time, it will blossom into something far greater than it looked like when it first arrived in capsule form. The Apostle Paul, the New Testament, the book of Ephesians is telling us that this great gospel truth of redemption is like one of those capsules. What begins with our experience of redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins, all by His grace will one day blossom and expand into a uniting of all things under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. What begins in capsule form with our redemption is a down payment on the restoration of everything that is broken. As we sing at Christmas, He came to make His blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. What begins in capsule form as the forgiveness of our sins is going to blossom into a redemption reaching as far as the curse is found. Jesus came to defeat sin and to defeat death and to defeat darkness forevermore. And that means that Even if you do not yet believe these things to be true, you should at least want these things to be true. Isn't there a longing inside of you for cleansing, for forgiveness, for restoration by grace? And as we look around at the world around us, isn't there a longing to see everything restored? way beyond our ability to fix it up a little bit at a time. This is the first great gospel truth that this passage puts in front of us. It's the gospel truth of our redemption. And like a log going into the fire of our gospel gratefulness together, I hope that as we hear these things, we're not just saying I gained some information about what Jesus has done. I hope there's something stoked. Something stirred up. A greater gratefulness for Jesus Christ and all he's accomplished. Greater light to spread beyond us. Here's a second great gospel truth that this passage puts in front of us. Not only this great gospel truth of redemption, but also this great gospel truth of inheritance. Inheritance. We see that especially in verses 11 and 12. In the translation that I read, it goes like this. In Him, we have obtained a what? An inheritance. All right. <laughs> you guys. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What is this inheritance idea? Last week we talked about the idea of gospel adoption. We used examples from my own family. What does adoption do? It's a legal declaration that even though you once were not a part of this family, now you are declared to be a part of this family. But it's way more than a legal declaration. It's an ongoing relationship. If an adoptive relationship has its high point on the day of legal security, that is not a healthy adoption. (laughs) Adoption is meant to be, uh, the declaration of adoption is meant to be the beginning of an ongoing and growing relationship of love. And adoption, of course, has its roots in decisions made in the past. We talked about that idea of adoption last week. But there's an element of adoption that we didn't get into because I knew it would come up again this week. It's this idea of inheritance. When you are adopted into the family, you become a part of the family inheritance. In fact, in the mindset of the ancient Roman world that the New Testament was written in the days of, in the mindset of the ancient Roman world, the primary issue in adoption was an inheritance. The most famous adoption in Roman history was the adoption, or was when Julius Caesar did not have a male heir to his wealth, to his name, to his reputation, to his fortune, to his conquests. So what did he do? He adopted Octavian as his son. Octavian is a man that we know in the Christmas story as Caesar Augustus. Here's what I'm getting at. Because... Augustus was adopted into the family of Julius Caesar. He was given, essentially, an entire kingdom as his inheritance. Not because he won the victories himself. But as an inheritance, all by grace, because of victories won by somebody else. The New Testament announces good news of a far greater adoption into a far greater family so that we who believe in Jesus Christ might inherit a far greater kingdom because of the finished work of a far greater victor and his victory. Because we have been adopted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, into the family of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have been given an inheritance of an entire kingdom together with Christ. Not because of our victories, but because of His victories, which are given to us, passed along, and shared with us as part of the family inheritance. All by His grace. And this was His plan all along. 
I'm going to speed on here a little bit for the sake of time. But let me say this. Like logs going into a bonfire, this idea of receiving an inheritance alongside Jesus Christ in the kingdom, it should fuel something in our hearts. But there's a third great gospel truth that fuels gospel gratefulness. It's not found in just one line or in just one section of these verses. In fact, it's found throughout them. That third great gospel truth that fuels gospel gratefulness is found in these two words at the beginning of verse 11 and these two words at the beginning of verse 7. Tell me, what are those two words? In Him. In Him. As we've mentioned before, verses 3 through 14 is a very long run-on sentence, the kind of sentence that your high school English teacher would tell you not to write. And you could just say, the Holy Spirit was okay with it. But in this very long sentence, phrases like in him or through him or together with Christ Jesus occur 12 times. If you say the same thing 12 times in one sentence, I think you're trying to emphasize something. If you repeat yourself 12 times in the same sentence... I think you're trying to emphasize something. If you say the same thing, you get the point. If I say that 12 times in a row, you're going to start to realize, I think he's trying to make a point here. And that's what happens in this section of Ephesians chapter 1. I think that the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, is trying to make a point here by naming gospel Truth after gospel truth after gospel truth after gospel truth, all of which are found together with him, all of which are ours, not in ourselves, but in him. Or if I were to do the translation from Greek to English, I would use a slightly clunkier phrase, even though it's a few more words. And my friends will say, of course you would, because you do everything long winded. Fair enough. But I would translate it not just in him, but in union with him. How are these blessings that are listed off one after another to fuel our gospel gratefulness? How do they become ours? In union with him. That's how. That's how we come to experience redemption, which is the forgiveness of our sins all by his grace, leading to all things being united under his headship, all things in heaven and on earth. How? In union with him. That's how we obtain this inheritance, not in ourselves, but by marrying into the family, as it were, together with him. The best idea that I can suggest for understanding this important gospel idea, this important good news idea that we receive blessings together with Christ, is to use the idea of a marriage union as an example. 
My wife Katie is over serving in children's ministry right now, and she's not here to hear what we're talking about. So um, I'm going to tell you what really happened when we got married. When Katie and I got married, um, I brought to the relationship student loans and a master's degree. That was cool, too, but, you know. When we got married, I brought to the relationship student loans. When we got married, Katie brought to the relationship a Chevy Impala. Yeah. And so when the two of us became one, do you know what happened? My student loans became Katie's student loans, as it were. And Katie's Impala... That became my Impala. Our Impala, if you want to be precise. But but in union with Katie, we now had, instead of just student loan debt, we now had a Chevy Impala. Yeah. And this is an analogy or a picture of this together with Christ thing that we're talking about here in our passage. In the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we be- turn away from our sins and we trust in Jesus, you know what happens? We bring to the table our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And Jesus, who was sinless, brings to the table the kingdom of heaven. And what happens when our lives are united together with Jesus is we bring the guilt, he, we bring the sin, he takes the guilt. And together with him, we share forevermore in his glorious gift of grace. We bring the sin. He takes the guilt. We share together forevermore in his gift of grace. An entire kingdom that we inherit. Redemption, which is the total forgiveness and washing away of all our sins. An entire kingdom that we inherit all by His grace. And it's all together with Him. And so where do we land when we think of these glorious gospel truths? We land right where verse 12 leads us to land. Saying, this is all to the praise of Your glorious grace. Thank You, Jesus. And we get a wonderful picture of that today. As we celebrate baptism with four individuals whose lives are testimonies of the grace of God to the praise of His glory. I look forward to celebrating with you in these baptisms. But I want to take a couple minutes and think especially about one of these baptisms that we'll celebrate today. All four of these baptisms 
can and should bring tears to our eyes, tears of gospel gratefulness, as we say, thank you, Jesus, that Micah has been redeemed from his sin and given a share in the kingdom inheritance forevermore. We say, praise your name, Jesus. But there's one that I want to draw attention to in particular. Is that today we're going to celebrate the baptism of my friend Wesley. (laughs) There will be more of that to come. For those of you who don't know Wesley, Wesley uh, has autism. And he has a chromosomal anomaly known as partial trisomy 4P21Q. If you haven't heard of that before, it's because it's very, very rare. And as a result of this intermingling of this chromosomal anomaly and autism and whatever else is going on, Wesley is not able to verbalize and articulate things as clearly as most of us are able to verbalize and articulate things. And normally when we baptize somebody as a believer in Jesus, we ask them questions about their faith in Jesus and their intention to follow Jesus with their lives. And we give them an opportunity in their own words to explain their own testimony about how they came to trust in Jesus and to follow him. For Wesley, that would be more challenging for him than it would be for most of us. And so perhaps at first glance, some of us might feel like Wesley's baptism is a special circumstance. But I want to suggest to you that in my mind, in my heart, as I view it, Wesley's baptism is not a special circumstance for baptism. It actually illustrates what baptism is all about. You see, when we think about coming to Jesus, sometimes we make it too much of a cognitive issue. Now, to be sure, there is mental assent involved in believing in Jesus. There are things that we should seek to understand about what he has done. But the Bible has deeper language to describe conversion than merely talking about a change of mind, doesn't it? The Bible has deeper language than just how much can you articulate. Baptism is not only a maturity, not only not a maturity rite, where we say, how mature are you in Christ? It's also not a cognitive test to say how many theological truths can you articulate in one shot. Why? Because baptism is not the result of passing a quiz. It's a result of having a new heart. A Christian understanding of conversion is not just that we change our thinking and get greater insight into how to describe Jesus a deeper understanding of what following Jesus is. is not just about our brains. It's about our hearts. It's about what we love. And here's what I want to tell you, as honestly as I can say it. 
while Wesley may not be able to articulate as many things about Jesus as some of us can, I dare you to find somebody whose heart is more excited and devoted to Jesus. You can... I sit in front of Wesley most Sundays when we're worshiping. And I'll tell you what, this kid's heart loves to be at church with God's people. His heart loves singing. His heart loves the preaching of the word even. His heart loves Jesus as best as I can tell. And here's the other thing that some of you may not know about Wesley. You can't make him love something. If you could make him love stuff, it would make Mike and Elizabeth's job a lot easier around the meal table. There are a lot of foods that Mike and Elizabeth feel like they would love to be able to make him love. But here's the thing. You can't make Wesley love something. Just like all of us know as parents, you can't make your kids love Jesus. But when God's spirit invades a life... When God's spirit does something and takes somebody takes somebody whose heart was once dead and makes it alive with Jesus Christ and turns their heart away from lesser things to love Jesus and what he's done for us, that should lead us to wholeheartedly, with deeply felt gladness, say the waters of baptism are right over there and we're going to be rejoicing along with you. It should lead us to look at Wesley and say to him, your story is just like mine. In him. Because of him. All by his grace. We have redemption. And we have an inheritance. All by his grace. And all to the praise of his glory. And so, as we baptize four people today, Wesley being one of them, we look at each of these young men being baptized today, and we say to Micah, we say to Mason, we say to Josh, and we say to Wesley, my brother, my brother, We rejoice with you because in him we have redemption and an inheritance all by his grace and all to the praise of his glory. We look at these young men not just as people who attend. We look at them, we love them, we link arms with them in singing the praises of the Father as part of our family in Jesus Christ. And together, with one voice, as we celebrate these baptisms, we proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Together, as we celebrate these baptisms, we say, in Him, we have redemption and an inheritance, all by His grace and all to the praise of His name. That's where we're headed today.